if I would give advice to a younger version of myself, I would say it's better to save one or two more months uh, and then buy that more, you know, more professional product uh, than, you know, trying to buy a cheaper product and, and hoping that it will do the same thing because in the end you would end up with the more expensive product anyway. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In Podcast, I'm Andre your host and in this episode we've got Carol from KS Motorsport joining us all the way from Sweden. Uh, Carol has been beavering away in his workshop creating a one-off full tube frame DTM based BMW M4. Now he's taken the original BMW DTM M4 and basically gone nuts. The aero is at a whole different level and if anyone has followed the Scandinavian car scene I'm not quite sure what's in the water over there Uh, but these guys and girls create some of the wildest and most extreme cars that certainly I've ever seen. This thing's going to be putting out around 1100 horsepower and uh, suffice to say it's going to be insane. Uh, We would definitely urge him, we'll just drop this into the show notes as well to follow his Instagram. Obviously in a podcast format it's a little bit difficult to get a really good visual understanding of the things that we are talking about but if you jump on board and follow along with uh, Carol S Motorsports Instagram you'll be able to see all of that too. Before we get into our interview with Carol today, just a quick introduction to High Performance Academy. If this is your first time joining the show, then High Performance Academy is an online training school. We specialise in teaching people everything you need to know about optimising your car and making it go faster. I'm talking here about EFI tuning, performance engine building, motorsport wiring and we also cover topics on race driver training as well as car setup and optimization. We've got a huge range of courses covering all of those topics. We've got an online community that is private to our members which is the best place to get reliable and accurate answers to your specific automotive performance questions. We also run bi-weekly members webinars. Uh, We've got over 300 hours of existing content in that webinar archive and that is a goldmine, one of the fastest ways to expand your knowledge on a huge range of performance automotive topics. Now you can check us out at hpacademy.com forward slash courses, that'll give you a full list of all of the courses we have available and if you do see something that uh, maybe sparks your interest, as a special for anyone following our podcast, you can use the coupon code PODCAST75 and that will get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. Again, we'll chuck a link in the description for that coupon code. All right, let's get into our interview now. All right, welcome to the podcast, Carol, and I want to start by just getting a, a bit of an explanation from you of what exactly it is you're building because we know it's based loosely around a BMW M4 DTM car but you've put your own really unique twist on this and it is something really extreme so can you give us a, a bit of an, a, an understanding of what it is you're trying to build here? Thanks for having me. Uh, I will try to explain in short words because otherwise I think this will be the longest podcast ever but uh, 
so so overall i have been doing some bmws over the years past 15 years and and i think the like the next step every time you you do a new car you want to you know evolve in some some way so you want to have something bigger and better and you know it it always has to be better for sure so uh, we were aiming on doing a, a replica of the bmw m6 gt3 car so because okay. it made sense, you know, you could get the six series body and then you can get the body kit uh, off the shelf. Uh, but then uh, actually a friend of mine in Norway started a project as well with with this BMW M4 where he started of the scan. So he had uh, some bits and pieces of the scan of a, of a 18 scale toy car, an actual DTM race car. Uh, but 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 he was, you know, he was in some issues so he couldn't he couldn't fulfill fulfill the project so i took took it over and took the files and we you know ended up milling out the body in styrofoam uh so and from scanning the 18 scale it, who the 18 scale models are actually really detailed so if you ever have the chance to look at that one like literally everything is on there so so scanning that and then uh you know scaling it up in 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 a CAD software, uh, it wasn't too much work. Um, uh, and then preparing it for milling, uh, I think it was around 50 hours from from elite projects doing that. All right, let, let's just sort of halt there because that's something I've never heard before uh, using a 118th scale model, which obviously for popular race cars, you know, the, there's a lot of manufacturers making scale models. So well, the obvious question when you've got a car that from a manufacturer is is probably nudging up towards a million dollars or thereabouts, obviously getting access to the real thing uh, to make moulds, just it's not accessible. So that, that's quite a unique take on using an 18th scale model in order to generate uh, a, a model to, to make your body work from. Obviously, you're you're limited by the accuracy of that scale model. You've just said that the one that you used was was pretty accurate, but are there potential pitfalls when it comes to using that technique? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it, I don't think that if you look at that, like when they mass produce these shelf cars, these shelf models, I don't think they have the intention to have it like you know thousand percent correct. Like if if of it's course. if it's close to something lookalike, then they will be happy for that. So. Um, and one of the issues that we saw when, you know, starting assembling it, like getting the headlights on the car, I was like hoping like, OK, per- per- perhaps we can get the M4 front headlights and the back headlights of the normal M4. So I did some measurements. I actually got BMW to send me headlights, uh, but they didn't fit at all. Like they are nowhere close. Um, so after some digging, I actually found out that the, the trunk of the DTMs, the headlights are actually milled, like they are molded into the, the rear yeah. trunk itself. So it's actually not a headlight. It's just, you know, just a transparent uh, red plastic on, on the back uh, that it actually fitted to that. So I actually got hold of those two, but they didn't fit as well. So uh, if you if you scale it from 118 to you know almost four and a half meters car and you have you know you have a couple of millimeters difference or say a tenth of a difference in the model and then you scale it up then that's going to be a lot more when you when you do the actual model uh, in the milling so so that's like I think in the end you have to have the 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 idea behind it to say that okay not everything will fit so you have to do like literally everything custom and that's a big downside yeah. of it. All right, so there's a bunch more I want to dig into there, but before we, we, we sort of talk a little bit more about 
uh, the the process of making this body mould. Uh, just coming back to the actual base car, and, and this is an area I'm I've got a broad understanding, but I just want to make sure we're, we're on the same page. So it's an M4 DTM, and sort of the last few years DTM has gone through a bit of a change. They've gone from a bespoke or carbon fibre monocoque chassis with a, a body over the top to uh, a basically running GT3 cars now to, to cost cut, as, as I understand it at least. So are you talking here, is this an M4 GT3 car or is this actually one of the, the earlier DTM cars that you've modelled? So, so it, you know, when they competed with the E30 M3s, those were still something that you could buy. Of yeah. course, they were modified, but but it was very much the same car. And I think around 2000, I'm not sure exactly when they went for these carbon monocoque, as you mentioned. And and those, that's the one we actually based it on. So uh, the the latest model of the, those, they were actually a little bit different because they had a four cylinder uh, engine on them with turbos. Mm. But we based it on the the V8, four liter V8 that had around 500 horsepower. So. The GT3s today are back to you know these production cars uh, that are similar, but but the carbon monocoque that we uh, based it on is is actually completely different. It hasn't it's nothing to compare with a standard car. Sure. Now again, just from my broad understanding, that uh, carbon fiber monocoque generation of the DTM cars, at least if you look at them, I mean obviously I'm no aerodynamicist, but just looking at them, the aero package always looked a lot more extreme than our current crop of GT3 cars. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but looking at what you've done just via your, your Instagram uh, posts, you've kind of taken that aero package and just turned the dial up to 12 or 13. Uh, so you, you're trying to get a lot more downforce out of this. Uh, what what was the sort of design process around developing the aero? Because it's something that... Obviously, you know, to get it right, you do have to have a, a reasonably in-depth knowledge of aerodynamics and then there's validation via CFD and actual real-world testing that sort of goes into optimising that. So can you give us a bit of a take on, on, on what you've done in, in that regard? Yeah, sure. And I think that, you know, because we, we aim, aim to, to build it uh, to based on, on a tube frame, uh, we didn't really have any restrictions on how the arrow would need to look like. So, I mean, if you would if you would base it on a on a production like a base plate, then you would be quite restricted. So, so in this case, we we actually turned to a company in the states called Verus Engineering, who has done a lot of you know time attack cars and and a lot of CFD stuff, uh, and they have. I gave them literally free free like free hands to do whatever they want. I, I gave them some specifications. I'll say that, you know, a splitter should look like this and, and the floor should look like this. Uh, and we, because we had the, uh, the underbody of the, of the scale model and, and also the top body, we, we had some sort of, you know, boundaries to, to, to stay in. So it, it shouldn't, you know, poke out so much on the sides. Uh, and uh, we also had the gearbox in model from Albin. So, you know, we could have put all of these pieces there. We knew about what like the control arms will be. So, so we had like most of the things we had there. Um, but then they actually went just bananas. And, and I think we put some 750 hours of, of simulation 
before we were happy. So we, we, we didn't say that it has to look a certain specific way. We just said these numbers we want to reach. Uh, and, and the main goal wasn't, you know, to say, okay, let's put a, a three element wing on the back and be good with that. We want to have a, a coefficient. So we, we want to have an efficiency on, on, on the, on the downforce versus the drag or the, the negative lift versus the drag. So that was the main goal to get those numbers really, really good. Yeah, I think that's something that's that's easy to overlook for for those of us who who haven't really delved into aero at, at all. Um, it, it's not as simple as you say. There is is just chucking a three element rear wing that you can buy off a variety of manufacturers on the back of the the car and, and calling it good. And just from my perspective, we've gone through a very low level iteration of aero di- di- development on our own car nothing at all like what you're doing but I, I have experience from the driver's seat the the difference it's made and, and what I'd say is there's a couple of elements there the first as you mentioned <clears throat> we can get a lot of downforce but uh, with a poorly designed wing or one that's not very efficient that comes at the expense of a lot of drag as well so uh, particularly in high speed uh, parts of a racetrack that's going to really slow you down. So you have to Mm. weigh that up. But the other thing which I think is easy to overlook, and in my opinion probably every bit as important if not more so, is is getting the aero balance between the downforce on the front axle line and the rear. Because again, it's very easy to to put a a big rear wing on, crank in a a huge angle on that rear wing and create quite a bit of, of rear downforce. Uh, and of course, all you end up doing there is producing a car that understeers horribly. So it, it is a case of getting that centre of pressure correct. And obviously that's sensitive to ride height, it's sensitive to rake, and, and that can change uh, as as the car's uh, velocity changes as well. So that that's the sort of work you're doing with Versus for the the simulation. Am I right there? Yeah, correct. So so we did, for example, the, the floor... Uh, the underbody of the car, it's actually like when you see a diffuser of the car, like in, in normal stock cars, you have to have like the less, l- last 50 centimeters of the car, maybe ramps, right? So mm-hmm. you, 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 but on our uh, floor, you actually like one, so, so perhaps 30, no, sorry, 50 centimeters after the front tire, that's where the, the underbody, uh, the, the, the diffuser starts to ramp. So uh, right, yeah. So and this so the is, whole underbody of the car essentially is is tunnels to produce downforce. Yeah, correct. And and this is what we did. As, as one thing that was kind of important for me is that something I learned over the years is you know it's better to go for something that's you know bespoke and pro- proven uh, rather than using uh, like you know trying to invent the wheel, wheel from the start. So one thing that was kind of important going with Verse is that they use a kind of sophisticated software for this and they use a software called ansys uh which is uh, i think even volkswagen made the pike pike's peak car in that software so so you know when they mentioned that to me then i was like okay I, I i know the software is good because i've been working at siemens for 10 years so i know like software if you have a good software then you have a good base right um yeah and i think for for the underbody for the diffuser we did like uh we did four different versions of it and and each version had you know a couple of hours of simulation in different rakes different ride heights just to see like where is the sweet spot and should it be like a continuous uh, radius of the diffuser or should we have like you know like a radius then a like a sh- flat plane and then another radius to see like we actually really um uh, 
we really tweaked that and tried different things like really outside the box to see what what is more efficient in in terms of on track adjustability to yeah obviously the the software simulation is is important and that's going to usually if the the inputs are a good quality inputs and the software is sophisticated and capable that's going to at least get you very close to the ballpark hopefully right in the ballpark but uh, of course there can also be variations and the ability to make some slight tweaks to the uh, aero balance at the racetrack, it is also valuable. So what adjustability have you got built into the car? So regarding the floor, like the splitter, we, we have the possibility to adjust that independently. So so it is possible to adjust the splitter by itself if we need to. Right. Uh, but I think that in the end, we want to set the splitter uh, like in line with the, with the rear part of it so basically the the rear is the underbody with the diffuser so so we want to have that aligned as good as as is and then we do all the adjustments with the uprights and with the suspension of the car so and those like the pickup points for the control arms we have like three on each point uh, where we can adjust you know up down outwards like whatever we want so the, the the adjustability we have put it there not so much in you know having like adjustable points for the floor but we also have that possibility as well because if we find a sweet spot for the suspension with the with the push push rod uh, setup we have and and you know it wouldn't perhaps be more efficient to go lower then we can also lower the floor if we need to so we have Mm. perhaps like eight steps of the floor going up or down and also like eight steps of the spitter going up or down all right now you've just sort of mentioned the suspension setup, and and that's kind of another topic we'll we'll dive into shortly. Just just finishing up here with the the bodywork and and sort of circling back to to one of the earlier comments you made. Once you had that eighteenth scale model uh, scaled up in in CAD, you you mentioned that the process of creating the bodywork from there was was routing into styrofoam, is that correct? So was this to make a, a plug for a, a mould for carbon fibre? Yeah, correct. So we actually, or in this case, it was a company called Elite Projects here in Sweden who who basically find a, a, a big mill um, and then, uh, or CNC machine or what, what you guys call it, but uh, then we they actually put a lot of styrofoam blocks together so you had mm-hmm. the outlines of the car and then uh, the, the big milling machine actually did all of the work to to get the plug and then from that manually doing all of those molds for uh, laying up carbon and and doing that in terms of how far technology has come at least over the 20 odd years I've been in the industry at the start of my career, if you wanted to do that, you would be hand shaping styrofoam and then making your your mold off that. So, yep. how how was the technology, particularly in terms of CNC and CAD modelling, how has that expanded what it is possible to do for you know, I mean, non OE manufacturers without unlimited budgets. I think that you know in this in this end it it it's not so much you know I mean the the technology is out there as you say um, if you were to to hand sculpt the body then you I would still probably be doing it today we wouldn't finished yet so uh, but I, I think in the end it turns out you know having some sort of contacts friend that know friends that you know have have the possibility to get in 
to some companies that have these machines. And in this case, uh, elite projects had had a uh, contact where they actually had a really big milling machine. So uh, they could almost uh, almost do the full car in in one go. Um, I think they split it. I think it's like you know the front end is split a little bit and the back end as well. But but in the end they they didn't have to do like 15 different parts milled and then glued together. So um, doing that from you know if whatever software you're using today, I'm I'm doing most of the the CAD stuff in in Fusion. But you know if if you if you get the model in there. The tools are really, you know, they're really there. They're really easy. Like if you don't know how to do it, you go on YouTube for, you know, three days mm -hmm. and then you have the basic knowledge about it. So, yeah. so I mean, in the end, uh, it's, it's possible to do it today because the tools are there. Like literally, if, if you want to have a, a license of Fusion, it, it doesn't cost you a fortune. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, adding all of these packages, if you want to have the, the, the machining package for the fusion, it's not, it's not millions. It's, you know, it's, it's a doable cost. So I think the, the other thing to, to consider as well versus basically constructing any of, any of these parts by hand is when you're using CAD modeling and then CNC machining, the accuracy and the repeatability is guaranteed. And you're exactly. never going to get that sort of consistency if you're doing something by hand. So that's something that I think is important to overlook. But the main one, of course, is, is simply the time saving. Uh, yeah. It comes at a cost. But uh, as you say, I mean, the, the cost of the, the componentry now, or the, at least the software, is, is usually relatively affordable. Uh, and then you don't have to have the CNC machining equipment in your own workshop. You can you can outwork this. There's, there's hundreds of companies around the world capable of doing jobs. Maybe uh, when it comes to routing uh, a full body, that that's possibly a slightly uh, larger task. But um, yeah, for the for the individual components, usually that's that's not such an issue. All right, let, let's move on. We we haven't really talked too much more about the the chassis and the engine that you're going to be using to power this. And as you mentioned at the start with uh, DTM, uh, they went to a, a four-cylinder turbocharged engine. Uh, you've gone a slightly different way. So can you tell us about what is powering the car? Yeah, so... Um I mean, I've been back and forth, you know, because as today, I mean, I think uh, when you when you talk to Oscar about Elmer with the billet engines, I mean, it is it is kind of you know it's it's kind of out there today. To, if you want to have a high powered four cylinder engine, if you go with a billet block, you you, you know you get a you get quite far with that. Uh, hmm. But I've been always I, I've always been a BMW guy. So even since like the first engines I ever did was the old m20 engines from the bmws the straight sixes with two and a half liters and and the first one i ever did uh with some high numbers was uh m20 with like 980 horsepower and 1200 newtons and that was basically on a stock block with even a stock gasket on it um uh, and and from seeing all of those things that's possible with the bmws I, I early saw that you know you could get some really good numbers with these BMW engines, and and the engine I'm having right now in the M4 was in my previous car. It was in a M3, and it's 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 very modified. It's you know it has a stroke kit, it has all the forged internals, it has a, a really customized sleeves in it, a bit of dry sump, like everything is already there. 
So I kind of knew that, you know, building this M4 wouldn't be an easy task. So I was like, okay, let's put the engine that we have in there. And then we can figure out about the engine in the future. Because even though this V8 isn't that heavy, it's actually it, the weight of the of the M3 V8 is actually less than the previous straight six. Okay. So, yeah. so I mean, it's a good engine, but many people have some issues with it. So when, as soon as they go with a supercharger, they, you know, they start breaking the blocks and 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 blowing up gaskets and stuff like that. But I haven't had those issues. And perhaps it's because I use some of my old sorcery that I have from the old engine. So, <laughs> so let's just come back here. So the. The generation you're talking about is the the S65. That's the base engine which yeah. came out in the uh, BMW M3, and that was naturally aspirated uh, as it came out in the M3. So, Correct. with with that base block, uh, I'm assuming here, and and again, I'm I'm not a, a huge uh, base of knowledge on BMW product, unfortunately. So uh, that that is an alloy block versus the earlier straight six M3 was cast iron, from what I re- recall. So is yeah. that where that weight saving came in? You said the the V8 was actually lighter than the straight six. Correct. Yeah. So so everything on this engine is is you know aluminium. So it is like the heads, the, the the block and everything is on there like super lightweight. So in that aspect, it's always, you know, not good because if like something that we haven't done on this engine, putting this, you know, ARP head studs on it, because we, we, in my philosophy, we still want to have some sort of movement and flex of the engine because it's a V8. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to have like super rigid bolts in there. Like the, the original bolts are, you know, these, that can stretch a bit, uh, and and we, like we have had those things in in the back of our head when we did the engine, and it's been running like with the supercharger, it's been running like 900 horsepower for like four seasons. So so it is it is a super good engine because of the weight, uh, and and it is. I mean, if you run if if you run the stroker fully nat- uh, naturally aspirated, it will produce somewhere close to 600 horsepower. That, that's impressive from yeah. a naturally aspirated engine of that capacity. It is. In terms of, you've, you've mentioned there with the supercharger and its previous guys, it was 900 horsepower. Uh, what are you aiming for now going from a supercharger to twin turbos? Well, just I normally give the aspect of what kind of supercharger we put on there. And and that for most people that are, you know, uh, in, in this game, they, they probably will figure that out. But we actually will run a, a twin Garrett G3770 on, on that. Uh, okay. and, and we are aiming somewhere, you know, to have a peak power on, uh, about 1100 horsepower on that. And is that kind of calculated to be sufficient to be competitive in the classes you're going to be racing in or is that just a starting point and and further development down down the line i mean obviously for a two-wheel drive chassis 1100 horsepower is is significant and at least until you're at a sort of road speed where that aero is starting to to really work Mm. uh, i imagine you're going to be traction limited for for the most part in the lower gears anyway yeah that's correct i i think that you know um we won't probably run 1100 all the time. We will probably utilize it as some sort of push to pass or something like that. But with the early um, CFD calculations of the arrow, it, it, the calculation ended up saying like, hey, if you want to go 300 kilometers an hour, you will need 900 horsepower. 
So with, with that in mind, we do have some tracks where we could hit that. Uh, and, and, you know, we don't want to be, uh, probably we're going to run it at 650 in the beginning. Uh, but, but I mean, having, having, seeing what competition is in the Gata Beat Extreme class, most of them are running close to a thousand. So, so even if you would, um, you would need to come to the, to the competition with a highly, you know, this factory, if you would bring a DTM car, a, a stock one with BMW support, you would probably do really good with 500, 600 horsepower. But, mm. but because this is built in a shed, then, you know, compensating all of those, uh, you know, geometries, all of those setups, we do compensate with some horsepower. So that's the plan. Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> I, I love horsepower. I'm an engine builder and a tuner. So for me, the, the dyno number kind of validates uh, everything I did during the design and building of the engine and, and the tuning. And I, I think to a degree, horsepower can be used uh, to fix some deficits on on the racetrack in terms of maybe a car that uh, maybe doesn't have as much grip or cornering performance as, as potentially it could. I'd also sort of counter that with if you've got an evil handling car that isn't dialed in and sorted, trying to fix that evil handling with another 300 horsepower <laughs> is only going to exasperate the problem. So there is a kind of like, you, you obviously have to be in the in the window of a car that's well sorted uh, before you just simply add horsepower. I think, does that make sense to you as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, um, the goal here is, is, is you know, the, the arrow is on, on the paper, it looks good. Uh, but I think the mechanical grip of the car is like the most important thing here. So if, if we, if we try to go for a really high horsepower number, uh, then trying to dial in that mechanical grip will be a nightmare, I think. So, um, as you say, you need to start somewhere. And that's why we are thinking like, we will probably never go below 600. Uh, then we will probably need to remove the turbochargers. So, but we want to be the, we want to have the possibility to go as low as possible to, you know, to dial in the chassis without this horsepower, you know, frenzy taking over. Uh, so uh, we will see how that goes. Uh, uh, and I know how, how I normally solve stuff is that if, 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 the grip isn't there, then you can catch some on the straights with power. So, <laughs> you know, it is. Yep. I think Jeremy Clarkson said it good. Like, you know, if you have power, you solve much things. So, <laughs> De- definitely, and it's it's a fun way to go fast. That that's uh, for sure as well. Uh, just a couple of things uh, we we haven't actually talked as part of the discussion on the aero about uh, ultimate sort of downforce levels and, and are, are you able to share that with us obviously it's going to depend on your speed but have you got some numbers that you can kind of give us an idea of what it should be yeah producing? sure i mean and this been uh i've been like in the middle of this there is there's two different sides of this era things for, you know, for this amateur time attack uh, class that I'm going to compete in is that some people don't want to mention it at all. It's like super top secret and you have to bring it to mm. the grave where we are like, you know, it is there. I don't really care if you want to copy the stuff, do it. I don't I mean, doesn't matter for me. So we, I do have some numbers and in total, uh, do you want to translate it to Newton? So should we go LBS? Uh, let, let's keep it with pounds, I think, yeah. or kgs. That, that's probably easier for most people to understand, I think. Yeah, so if we look at perhaps uh, 160 miles per hour, we would have, 
around 6,000 LBS uh, of downforce. Okay. It's, <laughs> not, it's not uh, insignificant, is it? No, and, and I think the, the, the cool thing here is that if we, if we compare that to drag, at the same speed, we are like just south of 1,250 LBS of drag. Okay. So that ratio, I can't quite do that in my head. Basically, what are we just just a bit over six to uh, six to one, under six to one? Yeah, so. I think it's I, when we did it in the early stages. I think it was like five ninety or something like that, close to to to. to. Yeah. Okay. So, so I mean, those numbers are quite good, at least on paper. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's still the real life validation to see how that works out. But uh, again, I mean, if you're dealing with a company that's no stranger to to error, you'd like to think that their uh, CFD and software simulation is is at least going to be pretty close. And I mean, let's be honest, even if you uh, could achieve eighty or ninety percent of that, you probably wouldn't be unhappy. Uh, so it's a pretty good place to start. Yeah. Uh, just, just to come back to one of the points you made there, and I see this as well. I, I've never understood it. Uh, a lot of these world time attack cars that we see over in uh, New South Wales, Sydney uh, Motorsport Park, which has kind of been the premier world event for these unlimited style mm. time attack cars, at least on this side of the world. And, and you sort of talk to some of the competitors and they get really uh, secretive about mm. downforce numbers. Mm. And I've never understood that because if someone says to me that their car's producing uh, 1,000, 1,200, 1,500 kilograms of downforce at 200 kilometres an hour, I know I can't reverse engineer that to a to a no. wing design or a body kit that's going to produce that. So I, I don't I don't really understand the secrecy. Uh, it, it's just a number. I mean, to me, it, it's like giving a horsepower number. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah, reverse engineering that into something I could copy, but it just doesn't. It's it's not how it works. And, and you, you would I think even the. The conversation we've had already around the the development of your aero kind of really explains that anyway. So yeah, yeah just, it does. just something I've never understood. I think you would be in this case if you want to get a good aero package. I think you would be better off just going 3D scanning the the model that we did and use the full on the body on that that they actually have in that model. Normally these models are screwed to a, like a plate that you have on the table, but if you remove it, all of the details are there with the fins and everything. So I mean, if you would copy that, I think you would be better off. So. Uh, you know, for me, it's 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 not a secret with the numbers. It is it is what it is. So, yeah. Uh, just coming back to the to the engine. So you, you've mentioned retaining those factory head bolts to to sort of allow, I guess, some flex. So I, I'm guessing at this stage, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, head gasket integrity hasn't been an issue with the supercharger kit at 900 horsepower. Uh, and, and you're going to basically see how that pans out with a little bit more boost from twin turbos at 1100 horsepower. Uh, I'm guessing you're working on the philosophy, if it isn't broken, don't fix it? Yeah, correct. And and it's been like, because of these, on these M3 engines, uh, you know, they are very well engineered in the beginning. So they have like a three layer steel gasket on them as a standard. And I think that, you know, um, I don't really see how, how that could be a problem. Uh, and also that like if we get some issues where, you know, we parts start lifting the head and stuff, then we will f- need to figure that out. But like in the end, um, we will probably to reach that, you know, amount of horsepower, we won't probably go north above one bar of boost. So, I mean, there won't be. I mean, be- real- realistically, that 
that is not a lot. Correct. Uh, we have to keep this in perspective. I mean, I, I come from a drag racing background and head gasket integrity is kind of the holy grail of, of making more power. It kind of becomes the fuse uh, for the whole engine and it, it limits ultimately how much boost you can force into the cylinder. Mm. And w- within reason, obviously, the, there's a bunch of parameters in there, but within reason, the more boost we can run, the more power a small capacity engine can produce. But yeah. You know, I'm talking there of, of numbers of three bar and above. And at that point, yes, things are flexing and moving around, yeah. so head gasket integrity becomes really tricky. Uh, however, yeah, when you're, you're only talking one bar, you've got a 4.5 litre capacity there or thereabouts with your stroker kit, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And I think if you run the numbers, I mean, if we, if we peak at 1,100, we have like, what, 137 per cylinder uh, in horsepower-wise. So it is, you know, yeah. it, it's it's not massive numbers if you if you look how many cylinders you have that uh, to to utilize. So and and the engine, yeah, it's it's four point five liters that we will run on it. So it's it's quite a high displacement yeah. as well. Horsepower horsepower per liter. What we're talking roughly two forty two fifty, and yeah, horsepower per cylinder. Those are the other parameters I think are really easy to overlook, as opposed to just looking at an outright power number and saying, mm-hmm. "Wow, eleven hundred horsepower. That, that's that's a lot of power." Well. I mean, yeah, if I've got a 1.5-litre four-cylinder engine, then yes, 1,100 horsepower is a lot, but you're not running that small engine. You've got four and a half litres and eight cylinders. So, exactly. Yeah, it, it shouldn't be particularly stressed. Uh, in terms of other modifications to that S65 base engine, you've, you've talked about the fact it's running a stroker kit and uh, billet dry sump system. Yep. Dry sump kind of goes hand in hand with circuit racing at this level to just handle the lateral and longitudinal G-forces that the oiling system is going to be exposed to. Are there any other modifications, I mean, in terms of cylinder head compression camshaft design or are you still running predominantly stock components yeah so i we have been looking at you know uh replacing um the camshafts um uh, because you with this engine you have the possibility like standard from factory it drives in eight and a half thousands uh, and you could uh, we have been revving around nine with it with the stock stuff uh, uh but there is a a, a friend of mine in Norway that actually has the same engine in um, I'm not sure but it's like a silhouette car uh, and he's done the he removed all of the uh, the, the hydraulics in the in the head and and went fully mechanical and and he revs it to 11 uh, sorry 10,000 rpms and and right. so so that's been perhaps something we've thought about but you know as for now, I don't really see the benefits of it. So going back to you know, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. So, uh, but it will be f- for sure beneficial to remove you know all of these, um, all of these 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 cam pulleys in the front and all of that because it's it's a lot of things in those heads that you know it, you can have issues with actually. So. I assume you're talking there about uh, continuously variable cam control, uh, uh, if I'm correct, I yeah. think in BMW lingo it's Vanos. Correct, Vanos, yeah. So, I mean, obviously in a road-going engine where you're spanning perhaps 1,500 to 8,500 RPM, the av- ability to change the cam timing as the engine moves through the rev range can really pay dividends in terms of expanding or widening out the usable torque curve, mm. but... In a race application, which I think a lot of people kind of miss, uh, often those benefits 
really become almost insignificant because if you're talking about a close ratio six-speed gearbox, we're generally keeping the engine in a really narrow rev range. Maybe it's going to be five and a half, six thousand RPM through to eight and a half, nine thousand RPM. So over that narrow range, <coughs> excuse me, uh, over that narrow range, you're really not tending to move the cam timing as much so then you've got all of this complexity additional weight and potential failure points that you've got along for the ride which really aren't giving you any real benefits is that sort of what you're getting at there yeah that's correct i mean as you say and in a race application it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't give you that big benefit to to have adjustable cam timing uh, as you explained so um, i that's basically my my you know base thought behind this to say okay let's let's remove that because then we we can remove so many things in there um but you know it's still working uh even though we we won't probably adjust that much on on those rpms um you know still it, it it's not broken we won't touch it until it's you know yeah. start giving issues so I mean, I, I think also in terms of, of you, know, you mentioned your friend running uh, solid setup and 10,000 RPM. I mean, that, that is great, and I can only imagine that the engine would probably sound pretty amazing at 10,000 RPM. Uh, one of the questions we quite often get in, in our engine building webinars is, uh, what do I need to do to make my XYZ engine rev to 10, 11, 12,000 RPM? And I, I think... Uh, in general, just spinning the engine to two or three thousand RPM past the factory rev limiter is is not going to produce you any more power and torque because you're already on the the downslope of the torque curve. Yeah. So your horsepower is also dropping away. So it's actually a combined. You know, you've got to produce airflow at that higher RPM if you want to then make more power. Otherwise, all you're doing is putting a huge amount more stress and strain on all of your internal componentry for actually less power. So I'm talking there about head porting and cams, maybe bigger valves, everything that's going to uh, improve that airflow at higher RPM. So again, I'm just basing, coming back to, to your application, I mean, if you've got the easy ability to make the power that you want uh, without needing to massively extend the rev range, well, that's just going to make your life easier. Uh, it's going to be a cheaper build for the engine and ultimately less RPM usually results in more reliability. Is, is that sort of uh, yeah. a fair summary? Yeah, that's correct. I think it's also important to mention that, you know, you you have to look at what's happening with the valves and valve springs when you start revving a stock engine more than it's intended for. So, I mean, I know that the BMWs always have some sort of safety span. So even though if we, you know, start pushing it for 500 horsepower, uh, 500 RPMs more than, than, than the rev limit was from factory, I think perhaps somewhere we are good there, at least what the dyno number is showing. But, but I mean, some hidden things might not show, like, you know, what, what happens with the valve springs when you start revving it more. Uh, so I, I think those, you, you would need to have those things in consideration as well. So, but as you say, like you see these, you know, these Judd engines that some of the hill climb guys uses. And also I saw that Ryan Turk, Turk has that in, in his Supra now. And, uh, I, I talked to a friend of mine a couple of years ago who was, you know, was really interested in getting one of those engines. And, you know, getting the service intervals on those was, you know, really important because if you're revving an yeah. engine 11, 12,000 and something breaks, like literally it will it will expand not just to that cylinder. It will go like literally everywhere. So uh, 
as you say, if you, if you can keep it a bit lower, then that's good. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do with the twins, uh, Garrett's now. So, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, not to mention the cost of something like a, a Judd V10. When, uh, <laughs> when Ryan started dropping videos uh, of his new Supra with the, the Judd V10, uh, I got a little excited, I'll, I'll be honest. It is... Uh, easily one of the best sounding engines that that I've ever heard, yeah. um, but you know that comes at a, a significant expense. I think the only second hand one or used one I found on uh, a Racing Direct was something in the region of about fifty or sixty thousand pounds, and uh, yeah. that probably needed a freshen up. So yeah, we're in a different league. Anyway, exactly. I, I, dig- I digress. I digress. Yeah. <laughs> we've got a lot more to talk about. So let's get back to your project rather than talking about Ryan Supra. Now, one of the standout aspects of this whole build is the fact that you've got this this full tube frame chassis, yep. and that that kind of, in my opinion, not having gone through that process myself for an entire car, we tube framed the front end of my old uh, Evo drag car, and, and even with that, there was some significant pros and cons. Obviously the, the upside is it, it gives you a lot more freedom to do almost anything you want, uh, position componentry anywhere you want. With that freedom comes the downside of infinite possibilities and infinite iterations. And I see a lot of people uh, who have gone down this path and um, Josh Valens uh, of Motorsport Engineering who have had on the podcast is a classic example where he, he has modelled every single aspect of his car before he's built a single component uh, yep. using 3D modelling. Uh, I understand you haven't done that. So give us a rundown on how you actually started the process if you're just doing a clean sheet of paper and you're doing it all by hand with no 3D modeling to help you. Yeah, so I mean, uh, I, I see, I've seen what Josh do, but I talk to him uh, quite often. So, but, uh, and to be fair, I would love to do that. And uh, perhaps we would, uh, we were going to like, you know, reverse engineer that in the end. So we will like whatever we have now, we will probably 3D scan it and just add it to that, you know, other shell model that we already have. But uh, if you look back 20 years back in time when they did tube frames, you know, they didn't have the possibilities of doing it with uh, with 3D. So, and, and that's the path we went uh, with this one. I actually had a company that has been doing some Dakar uh, stuff and, and uh, old Mercedes race cars for, for 30 years. And they have a good knowledge of this. So what we actually said in this, when we did the tube frame was that the, the, the floor part of the, of the car is actually like the primary, you know, I don't government or what you would call it. So the floor is actually deciding how the tube frame is going to look like. So in in this case, we 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 made a mock-up of the floor, put it on a flat table, and then we started building a tube frame around that. So does this come down to the importance of those underbody uh, tunnels? As part of the yeah. diffuser, and you said yeah. that those start within 500 millimeters of the front axle line. So you, you're basically building a, a tube frame chassis to provide room for those tunnels. Yeah, correct, correct. And the thing is also that you know the way we set this up is that we we intended to have you know um, quite 
quite long control arms on the car so so the engine had to go really far back uh, and also like the, the widest part of the rear end is actually just around the Alvin's gearbox uh, other than that there's nothing outside of that so we we j literally just put, put these components on uh, components on on the table like the gearbox the floor the engine and then we start make the tube frame around all of those things so um it, of course you could have done it as 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 um you know, um, with with the 3D, uh, but it, it would have taken more time, and and um, I I do not have that full knowledge of doing all of those. So in the end, it was it was easier just you know doing hands-on stuff and and getting it done. Obviously, at this point, the car hasn't actually headed out to the racetrack. You're getting pretty close, but just with that that chassis design at this point, you know, you've you've got predominantly all of the components now mounted looking back is there any kind of areas where you've sort of thought ah oh, if we'd just done this it would have been easier or if I could have done it like this the serviceability of this component would have been simpler or do you, do you think you've actually nailed it pretty well first first time out no you never nail it the first time so <laughs> I think that like as Josh does it with the 3D you have the benefit of seeing how it's going to look like right so if you put the fuel tank you put the, the gearbox everything in the model then you will see okay this makes sense uh, but I mean in the end we have I don't say tons of stuff, but there are many stuff that, you know, could have been better. Uh, and, and is that going to end up building a new tube frame in the end of version two? I don't know, perhaps. Uh, one of the things that we are like struggling it, it with is that uh, the way we have set up the fuel cell of the car is actually like a horseshoe uh, over the gearbox in the back. Okay. Uh, so, and, and, you know, getting that fuel cell in there is, is, is kind of, pain in the butt so so you have to really you know get the gearbox in because as soon as the gearbox in there uh you can't really you know you can't really access the the alternator the starter motor and, and stuff like that so you have to figure add that out so you have to say that okay the gearbox works let's try it on the bench see that you know the the, the release bearing everything all those things are good uh, then you put it in and then you put the fuel cell in uh, and and that's a thing that you know it would have been so much better if we designed the tubes around that that fuel cell in a different way uh because as as is right now around the around the fuel cell we have aluminium um like cages you know so protective and and if you want to remove those you can't take them up so the fuel cell goes up uh but the t containers around the fuel cell goes down right so so to get to get the the fuel cell out to get the gearbox out you have to remove the floor you have to remove the body you have to take like it's a massive work so you know i i don't want to i hope that the albin gearbox will like work for 10 years so <laughs> <laughs> well i guess that you've got the benefit of at least not competing in uh, endurance events where you're going to be putting a lot of mileage on that gearbox in, in uh, a reasonably short time frame now we don't obviously have via a podcast the benefit of uh, visuals and, and your fuel cell is something I actually haven't seen in your Instagram feed. Uh, but just how you've described that as a horseshoe going above the, the transaxle, uh, 
is is that a bit of a compromise in terms of the effect of the centre of gravity? Obviously, you know, in, in the perfect world, we want to keep all of the weight as low down in the chassis as possible. If my understanding is right, and it's a horseshoe above the transaxle, that would uh, put that uh, that fuel mass a little bit higher in the chassis. Or have I got that completely wrong? Yeah, yeah, it does. But but it is basically uh, so when you have. Uh, when you have the, the, the B pillar or the, the, the main strut of the roll cage, just um, so that's going to be our rear firewall going backwards. Uh, so just behind that is where, where the horseshoe is. So it's actually not above the gearbox. It's more above the clutch housing of the gearbox. Uh, so, so it's basically what I said, I have, um, you know, I have three centimeters back to the fuel cell of the, of the car. So, uh, but the, the side tanks of that horseshoe is the biggest that contains the most fuel. So the top of the horseshoe is actually not that much. So if you would run perhaps 40 liters of it, then you would kind of have, uh, they would be perhaps, you know, 200 mils off the, of the ground uh, when you run the car. So it's not super high. Um, okay. we, we was planning on having the fuel cell where the passenger sits. But then, you know, people start asking about getting shotgun in the car. So we said, okay, we can't have the fuel cell there because then we will never be able to have a passenger. So, um, so we did a compromise to have the possibility to have a passenger. Then we did the horseshoe. Yeah. I mean, uh, any build of this nature, there's possibly a hundred, if not a thousand compromises that are made. So I totally get that. And it makes sense. It sounds like the compromise is relatively minor, not quite what I was envisioning. Uh, just to talk about that, that uh, transaxle in a little bit more detail. So you, you've mentioned you've got the Albans, I think it's ST6 from yep, the, off the top of my head. So just for those who aren't aware, is a transaxle, so that includes the, the six-speed gear set, plus reverse obviously, uh, then you've got your, your differential, but this is actually mounted in the rear of the car, yep. so you're running a prop shaft at engine speed and the clutch assembly is, is in the transaxle? Yeah, so basically in front of, of the gearbox is what, what Albin's calls the clutch housing, and, and above that we have the, the generator or alternator, uh, and on the side we have the starter motor. So basically all of those things that were normally on the engine in the front are now in the back. Uh, so, so as you said, we have a prop shaft with, with um, uh, adapters in front and back, and that runs at engine speed. So, um, and the, it's kind of neat because the clutch housing actually fits a really nice small five inch clutch. Uh, and we use uh, this ZF Motorsport uh, uh, three-disc clutch that's capable of 1,500 horsepowers, and it doesn't weigh anything. So uh, yeah. it is a really compact, nice setup having it that way. That transaxle setup and, and getting that clutch assembly to the rear of the car instead of conventionally mounted directly off the back of the engine, is that the benefit there just in terms of getting the weight distribution uh, better within the yeah. chassis? Yeah, correct, okay. correct. All right, let, let's talk a little bit about the suspension because this is another really big area that obviously you've got a huge amount of flexibility with that uh, that full two-frame chassis. So what was the process uh, around the design and, and just as importantly the validation of the, the suspension design before you actually went and started manufacturing and mounting components? Yeah, so for that... Um 
in the end, I had some idea, you know, what we would run, but but the guys that helped building the tube frame chassis actually has done some a lot of work when it comes to suspension for for both the the car cars and also for for some Mercedes racing cars that they did back back in the days. And and these guys are like really old school. Like you know, I wouldn't say their age because I, I would prob they would probably be mad at me, but they are you know pension wise in in age so so uh but but they have the knowledge like they are the old school guys they don't really re, you know they don't have to go to these cad drawings is these calculations like they they know what kind of weights will work and what kind of setup you know is good to start with uh but but with that said uh the whole setup isn't based on some sort of idea on a sketch on a paper uh, mainly like the the beginning of it is but in the end the, the plan is to go to kw in germany and run it in their seven post rig okay so so we have some sort of base setup that we you know uh we sketched that up we said okay this would probably work we we gave that back to kw and say what do you think about this and and you know the the calculations that we did on paper was you know kind of kind of close so uh, they went ahead and made made all of these six uh, dampers or suspensions that we have and then um you know whatever spring rates whatever that that's just a baseline so we we would probably change that a couple of times before we will be happy with that but when it comes to the ratio of, of the rocker arms, that's like 1.1 in the back, in the front, and it's 1.3 in the back. Uh, so, so that's a given because we will have some more downforce in the back because of the rear wing. Uh, so, so when you talk about that rocker ratio, you've got pushrod suspension. So, with the rocker design, what you're essentially talking about there is you get the ability with the rocker ratio to essentially build in sort of a, a, a rising rate uh, is that sort of what you're getting at there yeah correct because like normally when you have uh when you have uh, even if you have double wishbone suspension then then you would you would have the the suspension mounted close to the to the upright where the wheel is what we have done we have a a, a big rod that goes all the way up to um it's it's basically a roller so if you there are different ways you can do these push rod suspensions where you can have like billet mounted L's and and different ways but we try to keep it as simple as possible and use you know try to utilize the components that are really easy to get so what mm -hmm. we have done in this case we have milled um we have made like a, a steel um like a steel roller like a you know like a pipe where we have then uh welded on these different fixing points for for the for the rod that comes from the wheel and also for the suspension that goes basically downwards and also the third element that goes above uh, and that's basically just a roller with four bearing, bearings in it okay. uh, and and the ratio that we're talking about is that whatever movement you have on the wheel will transfer something to the suspension so so if you have 1.1 then 10 mils of movement at the wheel will be 10 mils at the suspension. Mm. Where in the back there is 10 mils at the um, at the uh, wheel will do something uh, less uh, than than uh, that in the back. Sure. Okay. Now the other thing you just mentioned was the third element, or you know, also referred to as a third damper or heave spring. 
and we see this used predominantly on open wheel race cars with with a lot of downforce. So can you give us sort of the thirty thousand foot sort of understanding of, of what that third element is is intended to do? Why have you got that there? Yeah. So and uh, it's it's kind of easy to understand it as I think you as you touched on as well because the the issue with these cars that that like the M four is that we will have massive amount of downforce on the car. So, you know, you wouldn't like, if you go on a straight where you have a kind of high speed, you wouldn't ha- want the car to sit flat on the belly and, you know, scraping. So so you, you would need to compensate the springs for that. Uh, but, but it, I mean, if you wouldn't have the third element, then, then you would just adjust those corner uh, dampers to whatever works in the straights and whatever works in the corners. But you will always have a compromise. You know, you wouldn't get it good in the corners and you wouldn't probably get it super good in the straights. So so the third element, the idea behind that is when you go uh, along the straight, then instead of adjusting uh, the two elements, uh, you would have a third spring above that. So before the forces goes to the left and right uh, uh, springs, uh, it will go on the third element before. So you would basically the two rollers that we have uh, those will compress the third element firstly so i mean just to, to sort of sum that up basically my understanding it's not something i've, I've dealt with personally but it, if you didn't have that to to kind of sum up what you were saying if you didn't have that third element basically uh to keep the car off the ground at 300 kilometers an hour at the end of a long straight you'd have to run excessively stiff spring rates which then are going to compromise your mechanical grip at low speed where you don't have that aero downforce uh that third element compresses when the the left and right hand side of the car are both forced down by by aerodynamic downforce so it allows you a, a better compromise to run softer spring rates on the left and right hand side uh, to get that mechanical grip without ending up forcing the car into the ground at the end of a, front, a long straight. That, that, that's sort of a good summary? Yeah, that is. Uh, and I think that with that said, also some, you know, you could run, uh, if you didn't have the third element, you could run uh, like the, the long straights. You can you could basically said that, okay, this the bump stops of the dampers would be here and you could run it on that as well. But in, mm. in my opinion, this setup is, even though, it's the first time for me doing it. I really can't say, you know, that, oh, this is going to be perfect. We really have to test it. But it's been proven. I mean, as you said, there have been other cars running this sort of setup. So I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's a bad idea to, to do it. Oh, not at all. It just does add like a, another layer of complexity. And th- that other point you just touched on, which I'll just elaborate on, I, I think a lot of people probably consider that bump stops are something that's kind of... Uh, you know, a, a final protection strategy in the suspension in a worst case scenario. But but what we actually see in reality is a lot of these high downforce cars, uh, the the bump stop is actually used as a tuning tool and the cars purposely run down onto the bump stop mm. at very high speeds to control that ride height. Because it's not just a case of <clears throat> the mechanical grip at low speed versus high speed keeping the car off the ground. The other aspect with aero is that uh, the downforce is very sensitive to ride height and very sensitive to rake. So using the, the bump stops and potentially packers as well can control the the ride height to, to make sure that they that nothing sort of untoward happens with the center of pressure for that downforce is, is that again sort of reasonable to yeah, say yeah I, w- I would I would agree on that for sure okay 
one last topic I want to talk about with, with the car before we sort of move on is, is the electronics package. Uh, obviously, you've got something pretty pretty elaborate there to control with the Albin six-speed paddle-shifted gearbox, uh, the engine that we've already talked about, uh, boost control. What, what have you got in terms of electronics in the car? So it's been um, – I have tried different – different brands of electronics over the years uh, and and um, you know it, it's kind of funny but most of them come from australia because you guys <laughs> seems to do good things but but in in the early ages i started with haltech and it did the it did the thing uh but you know when you start to go to these pedal shifts and and like more complex functions then i you know i was originally pointed to the motec stuff so so, so we are running uh, for the for the engine control. We're running a Motec M150 with the GPRP package. So it's basically the race package with paddle shift um, option to it. Yep. Uh, and and for that we also have uh, in the front of the car we have a PDM30. So a power distribution module for all of the electronics, like from half of the car and front wise. And in the back we have a PDM15 that basically powers some of the fuel cell stuff. Uh, rear lights, uh, the air compressor for the gearbox, and also the electric, electrical steering wheel. Yeah, okay. uh, and that them all presented over a seven-inch uh, Motec uh, LCD display. Okay. In, in terms of optimizing both the driver and the car, data analysis obviously becomes really, really critical there. Uh, what what have you got in terms of additional sensors, if any, beyond what you'd obviously need just to purely run the vehicle? Yeah, so we are uh, we are basically measuring. I, in this case, I like to have like if 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 you have the more data you have, the more you have to look at, and you, you know you have more possibilities. So, so uh, in my case, it is I'm trying to measure like everything. So we're you know measuring. The, the the position of the wastegate, position of the the blow off valves. We are uh, you know looking at the speed of the turbos, uh, all of the all of the uh, temperatures, uh, all of the pressures. So we we even have um, we have a, a looking at temperature before the intercoolers and after the intercoolers, uh, and also looking at the oil in in the in the reservoir and also what comes out of the engine. So it is it is kind of excessive but you know it's it's better to have it than not to have it uh and definitely and also for for this setup with the suspensions we will also run uh, you know potential meters on the on the suspensions in the front and in the back uh and another addition to that where we are not there yet but we will probably uh, run um two of these laser ride height sensors on the car so mm-hmm. we will have one in the in the back, one in the front to um, measure the ride height of the car uh, on track. Yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of data to to look through. And I just want to point out there, I I'm definitely uh, of the same kind of philosophy as you that that more data is, is definitely better. I'm a bit of a data nerd when it comes down to it. And I mean, w- when you've got a very complex car like you have there, particularly with the suspension setup and the aero, uh, you know, to, to validate what's happening and to optimise it, there's a requirement for some of those sensors like the shock potentiometers, uh, laser ride height, etc. So it all makes sense. I, I think it's worth mentioning that for the average enthusiast, you know, just getting started with data analysis, particularly on a, an entry-level race car, 
I do also believe that less is, is often more because when you've got several hundred channels of data, it's very easy for uh, a novice to kind of just get lost in the detail. And, and you know, you can, you can learn a lot and make a lot of improvements with actually just a handful of channels at the entry level. So I just wanted to to kind of uh, mention that aspect. Yeah. Uh, in in terms of the the position you're at with the build at the moment, you know how how far away are you from finally hitting the racetrack? So I think that we the the, the plan is that we will showcase the car in uh, about three or four months. Uh, but as as is right now, uh, most of the like the steel, the tube frame, and all of those things are painted. So uh, it actually comes down to you know doing some sort of final assembly on things right now. Uh, mm. the, the car has been assembled probably five or six times already. So we have you know all of the electronics, all of the engine, all of that is already tested. We haven't started the engine yet because we have we didn't uh, yet pull the the fuel lines. But but overall, like all of the electronics for for the for the gearbox for for the engine for the throttle bodies, all of that is already tested. So so like it really comes down to you know doing the final assembly and putting stuff in the car right now to to be able to you know uh, test it and, and and try it out. And I think. It would be reasonable to say that we could probably start the engine within one and a half months or so, something like that. That's, that sounds like an exciting time. Have you got a, a sort of strategy for your initial shakedown of the car? Yeah, we, we're gonna do. Uh, we're gonna do uh, like always in previous cars. It's always been a shakedown going to a race, and you know how that <laughs> ends up. So uh, in this case, we're gonna do. Uh, something like a technical shakedown so we're going to go basically just to to a close track or to an air, airfield or something and just do all the technical checks to see that everything works and it is you know working as intended uh, when that is done then we will go do a proper shakedown on the track and that's not going to be a race it's going to be a, probably a private session where we just you know start pushing more and more and more and probably you know even if we go slower than i've done previous on that track it's still okay we we just want to see that you know all of the things will work as intended so yeah i, I think it's it's reasonable to say that when you've got you know something that has been built from the ground up with with every single component custom made uh, systems checks are are so vital just making sure that you know the engine's doing what it should do the the lubrication systems keeping up the cooling systems etc so you know trying to do that at a race meeting which so many of us fall into the trap of going to take the a brand new car out and and debut it at a race meeting and you've got other cars around you uh the the heat of battle it, it just it very seldom works out for the yeah. best in my yeah. experience anyway and and i'm guilty of doing it myself more often than not <laughs> i don't know how many times i've been on the racetrack and when the dash started you know saying all oh, the temper is on temperature is hot and you're like but i'm just overtaking this guy let me <laughs> let me just do it and i can go in the pits but you know that's so i've learned from those mistakes as well so that's that's why we're going to do it properly this time yeah. Uh, I literally just went through that on a race meeting at the weekend in some exceptionally hot conditions that we've never run in before and I did four 30 minute races over two days and uh, basically I was consistently just pressing the alarm reset for engine <laughs> coolant temperature you know maybe uh, every every single lap uh, and, and that gets a little bit tire, tiresome after a while so you know obviously we've got some some work to do there. Yeah. 
Uh, lastly, I just want to talk a little bit about the Scandinavian car scene in general. I have never had the pleasure of uh, travelling over to your part of the world, and uh, the particularly we see sort of snippets, obviously, in car magazines and YouTube videos of uh, excuse my pronunciation, but uh, Gatibil, I think it, it's uh, pronounced or thereabouts. Yep. yep. Uh, and yeah, you know, I think. Scandinavians in general, you, you, you guys build some of the most extreme cars that we see for, for these time attack style events. What is it about Sweden or, or those parts of the world? Why, why is it that you're producing these cars at this level? Yeah, I think, I think you know, um, like touching on that subject would probably be a like, you know, six episode documentary or something <laughs> like that. But, sure. but, but in the end, uh, I think it goes down to like most of the people that build the race cars here are very knowledgeable. They, they know what they're doing. And, and even though if, if they blow up a couple of engines on the way, they're still dedicated to, you know, to succeed. So, um, like if you compare Sweden to, I don't know, to the States where you have all of these different tuning companies where you can basically order a drifting car or race car or whatever, uh, you don't really have that here in Sweden. You have, of course, a couple of shops that do engine dynos and, and uh, you know, selling speed parts and stuff like that. But but in the end, it basically comes down to like every every guy that ever builds a car here in Sweden does it have a some sort of workshop. They have you know, basic tools, welding machines or whatever, and they, they commit to do whatever they need to do. Uh, myself been there. I mean, I started, uh, my background isn't uh, car building. I When I started to build the first car I ever did, I was literally sitting on, on forums and reading on, on online to see like whatever solution does work. And, you know, what, 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 how can I build this engine to get five, 600 horsepower out of it? So, and it's mm. been a massive trial and error in this, like, you could go and, and build, you can go and buy a, a fully fledged engine from somewhere that will cost you a XX amount of money. Or you can just, you know, try and try and fail and try and fail and try and fail until you succeed. And I think that's, that's you know, that's the model here in Sweden, at least, or Scandinavia, that, that people are not intimidated when they blow up an engine. It's not a big deal. You know, you will you will figure Back out to the drawing board and try again yeah exactly i i've be, been there as well i had never blown up an engine knock on wood but but i had some issues that you know had to be taken care of and it is a process where you really don't um you won't get tired of it because you really know what you build and you really know what you made with, with your own hands so there's definitely something yeah, very satisfying when it all comes together and you know that you've at least predominantly done that whole project yourself uh, with the Scandinavian winter and you know, again not having visited myself from, from what I understand you sort of go through close to nine months of the year where you've got very little daylight and it's pretty cold outside is that a bit of motivation to, to spend nine months in the in the workshop or shed tinkering away and, and building these cars does that does that help yeah for sure i mean I, I i can't i can't speak for for the whole scandinavia but i can just relate to myself that you know i mean what what the weather here is crappy it it is dark as you say nine months of the year uh when you come home from work like what is there to do like okay you can go to the gym you do that for one hour uh then then what like you have to at least for me i have to have something to do and even though mm. I'm, 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 
working on a, on a uh, company here that's a fairly new started and we work with we, we're producing batteries um uh, i work 65 hours a week right now because it's so much work but still i i managed to squeeze in five or six hours of workshop every day uh, and you know it is it is at some point if 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 people that don't understand it look at it to say okay you how do you manage it you you must be crazy but in the end you know it, it going to the workshop after a busy day and you know doing some welding or whatever it's it, it's like i don't know it's it's like music for your for your head you know it's it's really it's really calming and nice nice to do so yeah i think i think a lot of our listeners who who are maybe going home after a day's work and sitting on the couch and watching netflix till 10 p.m then going to bed uh, could probably take a leaf out of your book there, and uh, you know, if you want to achieve something special in 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 this lifetime, it requires some effort, and you're going to have to do something that is different to what everyone else is doing. So, you know, I think understanding that what you're doing there, 65 hours of of work plus five or six hours a day in in the workshop working on your car and that's the commitment that it takes to to achieve what you are achieving so i think people just really probably should focus on that look carol we we're getting a little bit uh long here in time and i do want to respect your time so i think we'll, we'll move towards finishing up here uh we've got a few questions that we like to ask all of our guests and, and the first of those is what's next and in the future for you and that could be this car it could be uh business development you mentioned batteries uh anything sort of we, what's the future hold for you right now yeah, so uh, speculating about if there will be a version 2.0 of the of the nuked M4 EP, as we call it. Uh, I, you know, if you asked me a couple of months ago, I would say that I will never build a car again. Uh, but you know, when we're getting to the f- stages of finishing, I, I really don't know. I don't. I don't want to say that we will, you know, evolve this to a version 2.0. It will probably happen. But you know, right now, I just wanted to get it on the track. And you know, get some get some hours behind the wheel. So, uh, and with the situation in the world right now, will we convert this to electric in the future? That might happen. It's been an uh, on, ongoing discussion as well. So we'll see what happens there. Sure. Um, yeah. Are we likely to see it compete at the likes of World Time Attack Challenge in Australia? Uh, yeah, I have. Uh, I can't really remember the the the. The guy that's responsible for the event, I have him on Facebook. I have talked to him a couple of times. Um, yeah, Ian Baker. Uh, correct, yeah, Ian. And and I've spoke to him that said that he has to change the regulations because I think as it's right now, I can't really compete with the two print chassis that I have. So Perfect. Yeah. Uh, next question. Uh, do you have any advice given the experience that you've had? Yeah, but over I your think, you know, if, we, point, if, you could if there will be a some, version you know, perhaps of a separate class or some, some changes in the future, then I think, uh, you know, for sure we would, you are we would now. bring it there for sure. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, over the years uh, with the different builds that I have been, you know, working on is, is that 
if if there would be something that I would like to change is that perhaps not always to look at the cheapest things, uh, putting in the car, thinking that they will do the same thing as more expensive parts. Like lately, what I have been doing, especially for for the for the M4 now, is that mm-hmm. I've looked more at the professional motorsport, like the GT3 cars. Like what kind of components are they running? What kind of power steering are they running and stuff like that? So you would end up with the more expensive product anyway so um yeah i i I think that's a really hard lesson to learn and it's so valid you know when you're looking at a particular component you've got the choice of three different products at three different price points and it can be tempting to go for the cheapest and almost without fail you end up spending more overall because you find that the part doesn't work how you want it, doesn't function as you'd expected and you end up buying the more expensive components. Now you've paid twice, you've re-engineered the the car to accept the other component Mm. and I I think obviously everyone has a budget to work with that needs to be taken into consideration but trying not to to cheap out on on the critical components in particular uh, will pay dividends in the end I believe. Yeah for sure. Last question for today, Carol, if people do want to follow you and see what you've been building, and obviously it's very difficult with a podcast format, we don't have any visuals here, so I highly recommend uh, people do follow, uh, where can they go to? So I think the most uh, most updates will happen on Instagram, and it's uh, uh, the account is called Carl S Motorsport. Um, we also have a Facebook page and also a YouTube page where we do some sort of small vlogs and updates. But uh, to be fair, uh, it can be a couple of months between those YouTube vlogs. So uh, I think that uh, Instagram is the best way to go because we do some live streams and we do also, you know, a, a, answering a lot of questions on, on Instagram to like literally there is if I get 100 questions, I will answer 100 questions. So, so I think Instagram is, is the best way for sure. Excellent, and we'll drop those links into our show notes for this episode. All right, Carol, we'll uh, we'll finish off there and let you get back to the workshop. Thanks heaps for your time today, and uh, I can't wait to see and hear this thing hit the track for the first time. Thanks for having me. No problem. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get $75 off the purchase of your first course. You'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well. It never expires. You can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum, which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. 
If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.